Our first scripture reading is from Isaiah 65, verses 15 to 24. Isaiah Perhaps the starting verse might be slightly out in this one. Um, We will pick that up at verse 17, verse 17 through to 24. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labour in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord, and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. And then would you also turn please to Revelation chapter 21. I'll read from verses 10 to 27. The text for the sermon is just from verses 22 to 27. And after that, I'll read from the Westminster Confession. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal, clear jasper, crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, 
and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now a text, and I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then if you look in the bulletin, you'll find the copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 9, article 5. Article 5, the will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you grant that our reasons for listening to your word read and your word preached our reason for believing its promises and obeying its commandments would be most fundamentally out of reverence for you, out of fear of the Lord, rather than from some lesser reason or motive. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, they say that it's a woman's prerogative to change her mind. But uh, I think we are well aware that men sometimes do that too. They sometimes change their mind. And sometimes for better, sometimes people change their mind for better, and sometimes they change it for worse. For example, when one repents, that is a good change of mind, of heart and will. 
Whereas, for example, weakening due to pressure um, or beginning to uh, tolerate sin and wickedness, even to agree with it, uh, to agree, for example, with liberalising tendencies, uh, that is a bad change. It is a bad use of will. And uh, if you consider as an illustration of that uh, what has happened in, over the last few decades in some of the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, you can see a very clear example of that. It all depends then on how you use the ability to change that we have been given, whether we use it for good or for ill. Thankfully, the Lord limits that changeability in man. And he does it for us now, even in our present stage in life, because the Lord has currently given us the ability to sin or not to sin on the instance, but he prevents us from using that freedom in such a way that we would completely fall away out of his hand if that were possible. He limits our use of that freedom, that freedom that we have to use our abilities to opt for sin. And it's a good thing that he does limit that. And in the next life, we are told, we will not even have that ability, that possibility of using our will to opt for evil any longer. That will be gone, it will be taken away from us. And that is the point of this article in the Westminster, in this fifth article. Speaking about the state of glory and saying that in that state, we will no longer have the ability to sin anymore. That will be taken from us. And we see how that is implied in this particular text under two headings. First of all, the glory of the New Jerusalem, and secondly, the perfection of the New Jerusalem, its glory and its perfection. In the first place, the vision given to John, uh, it really is designed here to cause us to yearn for the New Jerusalem, to yearn for that state of glory, to yearn for that situation in which we will be with the Lord in heaven, or in the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll be able to see his glory fully, fully manifested and uh, to stand in his presence and worship him. And in order to get us to yearn for that time all the more, the text presents a picture here of how much better that state of glory will be than the present state. And in those terms, it gives us uh, three parts to this description that are uh, designed to lead us to that conclusion. It gives us a description of the temple, the situation with the temple in that state of glory, with the light in that state of glory, and with the place of the nations in that state. First, concerning its temple. As many of you would know, in the Old Testament, that first the tabernacle, then the temple, these were centres of worship. And they represented the closeness that God has with his people, dwelling in the midst of his people and allowing them ready communication with him because there was his temple or his tabernacle in the midst of Israel, providing that ready access. Sure, they had to go through mediators in order to do that, but nevertheless, that access was there. And of course, it was a place also where sacrifices, offerings were made, offerings made by the priests, which assured the people that this God who dwelt in their midst 
was a God who redeemed his people and who brought about reconciliation, who brought them back into good relationship with him. Through forgiveness of sins, and in which those sacrifices that spoke of that pointed ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the people were being assured that their, their sin was not going to be destroying their fellowship with God as long as they keep looking ahead to the Messiah to whom those offerings pointed. And that temple that spoke of all of those things, of redemption and reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins, the closeness of God, fellowship with God, the presence of God, that temple remained until AD 70 when the Romans destroyed it. And most likely, depending on your view on this, it was a few decades after that that John received this vision. A few decades after AD 70, after the destruction of the temple. But by that time, by John's time, Christians had begun to realise that they didn't need a physical temple anymore. They had close fellowship, as we do. They had close fellowship with God. They had the forgiveness of sins through the one who fulfilled everything the temple represented and everything the priesthood represented, all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to use the expression that is particularly uh, comes to the fore in this passage. He was now the centre, seen to be, that which was always true, the centre of their worship. And in the New Jerusalem, therefore, they had no need, there would be no need of a new physical temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Worship enabled by the Lord Jesus would now be centred directly upon God and upon the Lord Jesus Christ in the new creation rather than being centred on him through the um, means of the physical temple or tabernacle, those symbols that pointed forward to him. And uh, so also now they would have a greater freedom, and those who enter into that state of glory will have a greater freedom in this worship and in the exercise of this spiritual life. For as we read, the gates of the city and the gates of the this new temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, these gates would never be closed, night or day. In fact, there wouldn't even be any night. It would be a round-the-clock. It is speaking of a round-the-clock access to God and to the Lamb in order to bathe continually in the fullness of his light and glory. And that symbolism here in this vision is reminding us of how much better the situation is than even what we experience now today. It's speaking of a time where there are no shadows and no hindrances of any kind to us enjoying the, that fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we know very well, there are hindrances in this life due to our weakness and due to our sins. In that temple, in that new temple, that is to say the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing the glory of God face to face is even better, it's even greater than the glory that we see at the present time, let alone greater than what was in the Old Testament. And so the vision also tells us that there will be no need of sun or moon anymore because the glory of God and of the Lamb will illumine the new Jerusalem. 
that glory of, the, of God and the Lamb is itself the lamp of that uh, new creation. And there will no longer be any night, as I mentioned, because the, the lamp of the fullness of God's glory will be burning all the time forever. And that's reiterated in chapter 22, verse 5 in Revelation. The Lord often shows his uh, presence by uh, flashing and uh, by blinding light. Think of uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. Here he shows that his glory will be more fully seen in the New Jerusalem in such a way that there will be no more place uh, any longer for any kind of shadow. And this also shows, by the way, that God is easily able to send light into the new creation without the means, without the need for secondary means of light sources, material or physical light sources. So in the original creation, God created light before he created the light sources. And a lot of people say, well, therefore, the theory of evolution must be true, that Genesis must be a myth or uh, some non-scientific description that has nothing to do with the physical reality of it. But we see that God is easily able to create light without a physical light source and he's also able to remove those light sources and still provide light in the New Jerusalem. Third way that greater glory of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth is shown is by the position of the Gentiles, uh, the nations, in that New Jerusalem. Nations, that is to say men from every race, will walk by the Lord's light in the New Jerusalem. And they and their kings will bring their glory and their honour into it. That is to say they'll bring their worship and they'll bring their obedience and they'll bring their testimony of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for them and worked in their lives throughout their time on earth as well. And this is often put in the Old Testament in terms of the nations bringing their wealth or bringing their offerings to Israel or to the temple. For example, in Isaiah 66 verse 20. It is a picture of the full impact of the gospel on the nations and on their rulers in the new covenant and all of that brought to fruition at the end. In all of this, I'd like you to note the centrality of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Jerusalem. The Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. The Lord God and the Lamb are its source of illumination and glory. The nations and the rulers bringing in their glory are bringing it in to God and to the Lamb. And if you go on to chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, the water of life flows out of the throne of God and the Lamb. And the curse is removed by God and the Lamb. And the bondservants there are serving God and the Lamb. I trust you get the picture from this. In this description, this visionary description of the new heavens and the new earth, it is not man who takes centre stage. It is not man who receives all the emphasis. It is God Almighty and the Lamb. And this is one of the issues that we are confronted with when we consider this matter of free will and the various views that are around uh, throughout uh, the history of the church 
the various views that emphasise the place of man's free will, uh, risk missing this point and taking the emphasis away from the almighty God and the Lamb and putting it instead on man and his so-called freedoms. Now, what would you expect from anyone or anything who is allowed to come so close to the full manifestation of the glory of God and the full manifestation of God's holiness in heaven, surely we would expect that those allowed to come that close would be those who are themselves made perfectly holy. You mingle at work and in supermarkets and malls and so forth with all sorts of people, the righteous and the wicked alike. But with whom do you choose to associate closely? That says a lot about you. It says the, talks about, it tells something of the kind of company that you most enjoy. It says something about what you're prepared to tolerate uh, as you associate with various people. It, uh, and so with the Lord, who is perfectly good and holy and hates wickedness, he does not allow that which is wicked, that which is unholy, that which is contaminated with sin, to draw so very, very close to him. Our second and final point, the perfection of the New Jerusalem. Now, of course, in one sense, the Lord does allow people who are contaminated with sin to draw close to him. And we should be very, very glad that he does. His people in this life, who are still able to sin as well as not to sin, and who still have that old sinful nature clinging to us, can nevertheless draw close to God. And we can know the forgiveness of sins, and we can have fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, we can have that closeness to God so long as our sin is covered and the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ are imputed to us. But still, due to our sin, there is a degree of separation. God is in heaven and we are on earth. There is a measure of separation still. And in addition to that, because of our sins, there are times when we feel close to God and there are times, certainly, when we feel far from Him. Again, Sin gets in the way and brings about a measure of separation. So we cannot come in this present condition before the fullness of his glory and the fullness of his holiness. Think of Moses in the Old Testament. Moses, certainly a humble and a godly man who feared God and who had fellowship with God and was even able to see God face to face is the expression. He was able to come more directly into the presence of God than most men. And yet even Moses, because of that remaining sin, had to be screened in the cleft of the rock and God's hand, as it were, over him so that he could get just a glimpse of the retreating glory of God. But the text makes it clear that things will be different in the state of glory. And different in two ways. Uh, first, in that nothing unclean 
Uh, no one who practices abomination, no one who practices lying shall ever come into the New Jerusalem. Only the elect will enter, those who have their sins covered, that is, and who are counted as sinless and perfect through the Lord Jesus Christ, and who are counted as if we had only ever done everything good, every manner of good work for the Lord to serve him, all of that through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the ones whose names are written in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life. And everyone who enters the New Jerusalem in this way, in Christ, for example, when you die, when you go in your soul to be with the Lord, will have their souls cleansed immediately of anything unclean that remains. Because that's the only kind of state into which you can come that close into the presence of God with that, where he has that full manifestation of his glory and holiness. So that's one aspect entering into his presence in the first place. But there is a second aspect of it, and that is that it cannot change. Those who enter in this way, the men of the nations, those who walk by the light of God and the Lamb, as verse 24 says, those who continue to walk in that way, such that nothing unclean will ever come into that place, and therefore, when the Lord Jesus returns to wind up the age and return our resurrected bodies to us, it also means that those bodies too will be completely cleansed of sin and all its effects. And this implies that we will continue in that perfect state forever. Unable to change or in any way introduce some new unclean thing into this place where God's glory and holiness are all in all. We will be perfect and unchangeably so. We will be unchangeably free to do good alone, but we will not be free to sin again. We will not be like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall, who had the ability to sin or not to sin. The ability to sin will be taken from us. And that is, as I mentioned last time, Augustine's fourth category in that fourfold scheme he had regarding whether we're able to sin or not to sin. Now, perhaps that feels to you somehow like a, a lessening of man's freedom. And there are certainly some who regard it that way. Some who say, well, again, you've got this reformed thinking that takes away the free will of man and turns him into a, a puppet or robot that we will not be free in heaven to be who we want to be. Certainly some have argued that way. But think about what this means. If we, or for that matter the elect angels, had this ability to do evil as we do now, then surely sooner or later we or someone else eventually would mess things up again in heaven if that were possible. And the new Jerusalem would be marred. We then have to be thrown out as Adam and Eve were thrown out from the first paradise. This way of thinking would also destroy our assurance of salvation. This is the implication of free will thinking. If you're, 
If it's up to your freedom whether you enter into God's kingdom and you must be left free to decide that without God intervening, then why should that not continue in the state of glory? If it's that important before, why should it not continue in that, in that future state? And it then raises questions about the extent of Christ's victory over sin. For those for whom he died, if at the end they could choose to fall away. It would be a very fragile victory then. And on top of that, it would make a mockery of the doctrine of election. Recall what we saw last week with this popular idea of free will based on the view, based on the opposition to the reformed view, uh, on the idea that the reformed view has God forcing men to do something as if they're puppets or robots or just pawns on his chessboard. But the Lord, as we saw last time, does not force us to do good or evil against our will. He did not force Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He does not force the unbeliever or the believer today in this life. And he will not force us to do good, a good that we would perhaps not want to do in the next life. But that does not prevent him from granting us a will that wants only what he wants. And it does not prevent him from removing our willfulness, that which comes from the remaining sin that wants the opposite. God is not prevented from giving us a will to do only what he wants or from removing that part of us that wants to do the opposite for our welfare and for his glory. Uh, you know, a criminal may be prevented from committing a crime. He may be locked up in jail. He may be monitored on probation and so forth. And later, he may be very glad of that. Glad that he was restricted. Glad that he was kept from going back to his crimes. Even if it meant a loss of what you could perhaps in one sense call freedom, freedom of a certain type, which he actually might have abused and turned it into just another form of bondage out of love for wickedness. We should be glad that God will take from us the ability to sin because that means that in the state of glory we can live and be happy as we can without that dual ability to do evil as well as good. It seems that many people want to hang on to this this power of man to have contrary choice in his hands, that he must have all the options at his disposal, included in that the option to do good and the option to do evil. And somehow man misses out on something if he has taken from him the option of doing evil. Men want that power. Many do. And yet, as a Christian, as Christians, we should look forward to this. We should look forward to the removal of the ability to sin so that we can finally be rid of it in any sense and every sense and finally be free to worship our God without anything at all getting in the way of it. Without any interference on into eternity and without any possibility of that situation ever changing again. And that ought to be something that we yearn for and desire. And that brings us back again to the point of this passage. 
That it is teaching us to yearn to be with God in the next life, even though we may love to serve him in this life and we may enjoy the blessings that he has given us in this life. There's nothing wrong with that, but there ought to be in us alongside of that a yearning to be with God in the next life. A yearning to see and to know the fullness of that glory which we know already, but to be able to see it in the fullness of it and the holiness of God and the majesty of God, to see the fullness of that and to, do, to be able to do that, to know the brightness of his glory and his light without stumbling. A yearning to be able to worship in his presence without stumbling so that we can get on with the business of glorifying him with all of the gifts that he's given to us without anything unclean ever getting in the way again. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, will you enable us to yearn for the end of sin and misery? We pray that we might also rejoice in the opportunities we have to serve you in this life and to thank you for the gifts that you've given us, many good gifts in this life as well, things that you've given us to enjoy so that we may then give you thanks for them. But Father, cause us to remember that there is no greater glory than the state of glory to come. That state where all sin and misery will be gone and the worship of you will be ceaseless and perfect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn 469 sings of that uh, glory to come and the, the joy of that, the joy of the victorious saints in heaven, a victory that cannot be undone or tainted by remaining sin. Number 469, we'll stand to sing and would you please remain standing after for the blessing in doxology.
blessing, our doxology from the Psalter Hymnal, number 305, stanzas 1 and 7. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>